Our Father, we are grateful that you watch over our lives. We are grateful that you are you are our Father. You never take your eye off of us. The eye of the Lord goes to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. You know us. You know all about us. You know our circumstances. You understand our thought from afar. You understand us at all times. You know what makes us tick. You get us. There are times we don't get ourselves. There are times we mystify ourselves by our words and by our actions. We, we can't believe that came out of our mouth. We, we can't believe that we said it. Uh, we don't know why we said it. We, we, we honestly mystify ourselves. We, we don't. There are times we don't understand ourselves, but you understand us. And we are grateful that you comprehend us completely, fully, totally. You made us, you constructed us, and you love us. You sent Christ to die for us. You've got your eye upon us, and you know what's best for us as you navigate us through life. You bring great favor and you bring great, bring great blessing and you bring privileges. We, we, have, we have a lot in this country, more than most people on this earth. But we are not free from difficulty or heartache or pain or disappointment. Sometimes we pray and we ask that you would remove a situation from us and it is not removed. It stays with us. Sometimes we pray that you might allow a promotion or an advancement to happen so that we could improve our situation and our circumstances. Sometimes you answer that prayer with a positive and sometimes you don't. And at times it baffles us. You are the God who gives us what we need when we need it. And you know when we need something. And you know the right time to give us something. Your word says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Sometimes we think you're withholding a good thing. Our friends have that particular blessing in their lives, we wonder why we don't. That doesn't mean we won't ever have it, it just means for right now we don't have it for some reason. If it was a good thing right now for us, we'd have it, but we don't have it. Therefore, we conclude it's not a good thing. It may be in our lives in six months, you may send it in a year. But you are our Father and you know what is best. Help us to rest in the fact that you are our Father and you are good and that you have all power and you know all things and you know us and you will guide us and navigate us through life and whatever we need to get through that day and that crisis, it will be ours when we need it. You're the shepherd. We can trust you. We don't have to carry a weight of burden or anxiety about the future. We can cast it all upon you because you care for us. That's a privilege we have as sons of the living God. May we enjoy those privileges. May we utilize those privileges. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're back on the Eighth Commandment of Exodus 20:15. you shall not steal. Last week was our first uh, pass at this commandment. Tonight will be our um, second and last pass because we have two weeks remaining and we've got two more commandments to get to. We'll, we'll, we'll get it all in, Lord willing. And I think he's willing. Uh, so last night, so last week, 
we talked about the whole concept of this commandment, you shall not steal, is designed to protect personal property. As you shall not commit adultery is designed to protect marriage as the previous commandment to that, you shall not commit murder is designed to protect life. These commandments, there's a purpose, there's a reason. They, as we have said, they are the fundamental, these 10 commandments are the fundamental, fundamental uh, moral building blocks of, uh, of, of, of morality. Uh, uh, the Ten Commandments make up God's moral law. One of my jobs after I teach, we do editing, and some sessions require more editing than others. And then I got to come up with a title. So the title I came up with for last week was uh, Stealing Socialism in Scripture. My title for tonight is Stealing Free Markets in Scripture. That those, those would all come under this Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Martin Luther said this, if we look at mankind in all of its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable of thieves. One more time on that. If we look at mankind in all of its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable of thieves. Pretty direct, pretty strong. What's interesting is if you study the Ten Commandments, as you get through the previous, some of the previous commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You know, when you talk about adultery in marriage, that, that hits pretty hard, especially in our culture. Uh, you, you talk, that involves sexual immorality, that involves... And we live in a society that wants sexual anarchy, and a lot of us have histories that are not sexually pure. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. But that can be pretty heavy stuff. Um, and even if you have not ever committed adultery, Jesus nails you when he says, yeah, but if you've ever thought about it, if it's ever crossed your mind, if you ever looked at a woman and, lust, and have lust, well, you, you've broken it. So these commandments don't let anybody off the hook. Uh, the previous commandment, you shall not commit murder. Well, I've never murdered anybody. Yeah, but if you hate your brother, <laughs> I mean, they just, they just nail us. It's interesting, several different commentators, when you read guys who have studied this in depth, have made the same comment that when you get to the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. It's amazing how many people just breathe easy because they don't view themselves as ever having really been a thief. When I was um, five years old, we lived in a little town in the Central Valley of California, and the way those little houses were constructed, uh, the garages were in the back, and so there was an alley that you would go through to get to your house and enter your garage. There were no supermarkets when I was five years old. There were no big grocery stores. I remember the first one I ever saw. I was amazed. Uh, but prior to, that was probably, what, 57, I saw that big supermarket, first one in our town. Prior to that, there were little corner grocery stores. And I mean, they were a little. And every little street with every little subdivision had a little grocery store down in the corner. So when I was five, my mom would give me a little list and we'd walk out the back gate to the alley, and I could see right down about 75, 80, 90 yards was a little corner grocery store with a back entrance. And she'd watch me, because she was watching my little brother, you know, two little brothers. She would watch me walk into the back entrance. And she 
as I recall, would call the grocery man, Mr. Grocer, whatever his name was, and say, Steve's on his way down. So he'd get my list and he'd walk me through. So we did that often. One day I'm walking out the back door, I got my little bag, got my stuff for my mom, and I'm walking out and I see a can of something that I love. It's called Franco-American spaghetti. <laughs> I love that stuff. And it wasn't on our list. But I saw that can, there was a bunch of them, and I thought, and I grabbed one, and I put it in the bag. And then I scooted down that alley as fast as I could. And my mom was unloading the bag, and she came to that can, and she said, Steve, where did you get this? <laughs> I didn't know what to say. She said, did you take this? I didn't know what to say. She said, you, you, you stole this. And, you know, here's what I remember from that. I remember her taking me back down to that grocery store. And I remember I had to tell Mr. Grocer that I had stolen a can of Franco-American spaghetti. I mean, it's very vivid to me. Uh, he knelt down where he could get eye level with me and he, he, he said, no, Steve, when we have someone steal something from our grocery store, we normally put them in jail. I have never forgotten that. <laughs> but if you promise that you will never, ever again steal something from my store, I won't send you to jail this time. And I said, I promise I won't. And I never stole again. At least not Franco-American spaghetti. <laughs> That scared the tar out of me. But that was good for me. Martin Luther is right. We've got all kinds of ways of stealing. We're just a bunch of thieves. When you really look at it and when you really think about it. There are numerous ways that you can steal. So, outline time. Um, I'll give you one, two, three points. The, 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 first, uh, the first one is simply three ways to steal. Three ways to steal. Secondly, I'm going to give you 12 Christian economic principles. To kind of go back and touch on what we did last week. And give perspective. Big perspective. Thirdly, I'm going to give you a bad example and a good example of Christian economics. All right, so the first one, three ways to steal. Now, there are numerous ways to steal, numerous. But here's just three. Number one, you can steal from God. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and one of the indictments that is given to the religious leaders of the nation is in Malachi 3.8, God says, you are robbing me of my tithes and offerings. The tithes and offerings, there's always a question about, do we tithe today, do we not tithe? The tithes, the, a, a good case can be made that for Israel, Old Testament Israel, the tithes were the taxation system of the nation. Because it's how they supported the temple, it's how they supported the priest. So it was a tax, if you will. A tithe was 10%. When you add up the three tithes that were required for each year, you would be at somewhere between 23 to 27%, which if you've got a CPA and you're fortunate, you might be able to get that tax rate, maybe. I mean, who knows? 
There are so many hidden taxes these days. I don't want to wander off into that. But the tithe was the Old Testament taxation system. Now, the scriptures tell us that we are to pay our taxes in Romans 13. Uh, We are not to steal. It's a temptation. There are gray areas, and it's amazing how often uh, some things are black and white when you're doing your taxes. Some things are gray. Um, It's amazing how we struggle sometimes with perception of color when we are doing our taxes. But actually, it shouldn't be something that we struggle with. Don't steal. God's watching. You can steal from God. Secondly, you can steal from others, obviously. Thirdly, you can steal from yourself. Now, the reason I'm setting this up these, these three are very, very obvious. Sometimes we are blind to stealing. It, it, it covers every gamut of our lives. You can steal time. You can steal possessions. You can steal. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. Here's an insight. Dave Kraft does a newsletter for pastors. And he quoted Rick Warren recently and Warren had written something in a little newsletter called Readjust Your Values. Uh, values uh, today, we call value. Va- values are, are uh, it's morality. What, what, what are your values? That means what's your morality? So we use this term value. And just the phrase, and he's talking about work, being a workaholic. Um, Man, in our culture, there is such a push and a pull to just work and work and work. I gave you a quote last week from John Wesley. John Wesley said, make as much as you can. Um, Give as much as you can. And save as much as you can. Three good principles. But it is possible to become a workaholic. Now, the problem with being a workaholic is that you're stealing. First of all, you're stealing from your wife. If you're never there, if you haven't had a date since 1937, you're stealing from her. I remember when I was uh, a rookie pastor in my first church, I was so driven to try to build this church I remember when Mary said to me, hey, could we just go see a movie tonight? And I said, I don't have time. That was theft. I'm supposed to uh, love and cherish. I'm supposed to provide for her. And I'm supposed to, uh, and when you say provide, just not financially, but emotionally, all kinds of ways. When you're a workaholic, you steal from your wife. When you're a workaholic, you steal from your kids. I remember reading the big biography that Walter Isaacson did on Steve Jobs. And, and Steve Jobs, by his own admission, was not the greatest father in the world. But when, after he got that diagnosis of cancer and after it really, really got serious, he became more aware of his responsibility. Yet the clock was ticking because he felt like he was doing the most important work in the world. It would be world-changing. It was world-changing. But you see, somebody got stolen from, someone was neglected, someone was robbed. Um, You you can rob your wife, you can rob your your kids, you can rob yourself. Uh, A lot of illnesses are the results of robbing ourselves, heart attacks, whatever, different kinds of things. It's because we're we're robbing, because we're just, we're always working, we're always working. But see, we would never put that usually in the context of stealing. But it's a type of theft. That quote from Luther again. If we look at mankind in all of its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable of thieves. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor, and he has written a pretty good, concise book on the Ten Commandments. He gives an illustration. 
from 2008 that sort of supports what Martin Luther said back in the 1500. You, you, look at, you look at humanity and we're just a bunch of thieves. You remember 2008. You remember what was going on economically. So Kevin DeYoung writes this. Back in 2008, at the beginning of the Great Recession and the bursting of the housing bubble, I read several books that tried to explain what went wrong with our economy. The overwhelming sense I got from my reading was that many people and institutions were to blame, and you know, he lists some names here. Uh, but one book I read looked at the human element, not just in policies that may or may not have contributed to the Great Recession, but to the greedy decisions that people made, many people made. For instance, there were predatory lenders who wrote mortgages because they could and collected fees from people who really didn't need to refinance. They sold mortgages to a hungry market. Some even sold unhelpful products that put people into loans that they could pay in the short term, but not in the long term. But it was advantageous to the lender. There were also predatory appraisers. Now, was it all lenders? Was it all appraisers? No. There were predatory appraisers in 2008. Lenders needed appraisers to place a high value on homes for which they hoped to issue mortgages. Appraisers need the work that the lenders bring their way. The two groups were happy to help each other out in ways that sometimes hurt the consumer. Houses were appraised far too high. The industry couldn't justify it as long as prices, oh, the industry could justify it as long as houses and, and prices remained uh, high and kept going up. But then people started trying to flip houses quickly. And then you had a problem. But the recession was also the result of predatory borrowers, ordinary people. Uh, many borrowers lied on their loan application. They lied about their income, their assets, their employment, their credit history, and whether they intended to live in the house they were purchasing. One economist observed that as many as 70% of mortgages that defaulted in the first year turned out to have false information on the original loan application. And then DeYoung writes, greed has consequences and no one is immune from them. Greed leads to stealing. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart for from it flows the springs of life. The problem is the human heart. Jesus said, out of the mouth. That's not what he said. He said, out of the heart proceeds murder, slandering, fornication, all these different sins. The heart is our problem. The heart is the cesspool that we've got to watch, that we've got to keep our, we've got to keep our eye on because we still have this sin nature even after we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when you falsify a loan application, it's, uh, it's a form of stealing. When you puff uh, an appraisal, it's a form of stealing. Uh, same thing true for the lenders. We've got one major bank that is still trying to recover their reputation for what happened back in this period of time. And they have lost who knows how many depositors, how much business. Uh, they were ranked pretty high. I saw a ranking the other day, they're down pretty low because they're not trusted. Why? They were stealing. It was undercover, but it was stealing. When God gets a hold of a person's heart, everything changes. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the gospel and we hear the truth that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, our sins are forgiven. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, 1 Corinthians 5. Old things pass away, all things become new. So at that moment, we're born again and we are infant Christians beginning the process of growing in Christ. That begins a process of 
putting off the old man and putting on the new man. It, it involves a process of laying aside old habits and taking on new habits. Uh, let me give you some scriptures, and let's look these scriptures up. Uh, the first one would be Ephesians 4, 28. Ephesians 4, 28 says, He who steals must steal no longer. So if you have had a propensity and a history of stealing, whatever your unique form of stealing might be, don't do it. He who steals must steal no longer, that's the old way, but rather, watch this, he must labor, he must work, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. So instead of stealing from someone and causing them to have need, now you work with your own hands and you get income and now you're able to help somebody who's in need. It's a complete reversal because of Christ and what he does in the human heart. Does that all happen overnight? No, it's a process. Uh, we should also look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. The passage is real practical. Paul says, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. It's amazing, even in a tech society, we still work with our hands. If you're a computer programmer, you work with your hands. You're on a keyboard all day. And then when you need a break, uh, you might pick up a remote. We're always using our hands. Uh, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. If you work hard and don't steal, you work hard, uh, your needs will be met. Not all your wants, but your needs. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Another passage would be 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. 3.10 says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Now, that's just common sense. But you see, a lot of people would find that verse extremely offensive today. They would be offended by this verse. Although... It's utterly rational. If you're healthy, you should work. And if you're not willing to work, Paul says, they don't eat. That has a way, let them miss a meal or two. That has a way of motivating someone to go to work. We, no, I'm not talking about someone who's disabled or someone who's elderly or someone who can't do what they used to. The church has always been there for those in need. We're talking about those who can work, who won't work. The principle is, if you're able to work and you won't work, you don't eat. Pretty straightforward, but it works. It might be a young man who is fully capable of working, but because he was able to get on some kind of government program, he doesn't have to work even though he could work, and he's got money coming in. That's dangerous. Pull the money. Make him go to work. Well, I don't want to hurt his self-esteem. He's probably had already six self-esteem classes his whole life. If you want self-esteem, go to work. Go dig a ditch in 120 degrees and work eight, nine, 10 hours. You won't have to go take a self-esteem class because you were doing what you were made to do as a male. We're called to work. That job was given to Adam in the garden. Work is a holy and godly thing, and we are to work. We're not to steal, we're to work. J.I. Packer tells the story. It's funny. Why would someone be able-bodied and healthy and able to work, but not work because of their heart. So then you've got to address the issue of the heart. The Lord's always addressing the issue of the heart. G.I. Packer tells the story about in uh, 1921 and 22, 
The Spirit of God did a remarkable work in the city of Belfast. And they had their normal church services, but the Spirit of God began to move, and it was a revival. And the churches began to be packed, and people's lives were changed, and the services would go on longer, and people would come up to the microphone and publicly confess sin. That's when you know revival is happening. Revival like that is not something you schedule. Most of us grew up in churches, yeah, we're going to have a revival, you know, July 12th to 19th. That's not revival. That's man revival. What happened in Belfast was a movement of God. It just shows up. One of the things that happened out of that revival in Belfast, Belfast was a shipbuilding capital. They built ships that went all over the world. And one of the things that happened is that men who were converted to Christ, who worked in the shipyards, their hearts were changed, and on their own, they began to return. Each man would show up, a lot of them with tools in a wheelbarrow that they had stolen over the years from the shipyard. That happened so many times that a new building had to be constructed for the tools that had been stolen that were returned by men whose hearts had been changed by Christ. Let's move to the second point. Let me give you 12 Christian economic principles. These come from Albert Moeller, who is the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville. He's a... Uh, a pro prolific theologian, commentator on public events. He's written a book on the Ten Commandments, but this is an article he did a number of years ago called Toward a Christian View of Economics. And I'm just going to give you the 12 points. That's all. The, the 12 point, it, because what he does is he kind of sums up the big picture of what the scripture says about economics. You say, why economics? Because the commandment says, you shall not steal. And when it says, you shall not steal, it's a protection of public property. While we're here in Bible study, you don't want somebody out there stealing your car. You don't want someone, while you're here at Bible study, breaking into your house and stealing stuff. It's personal property. We looked at that last week. Uh, Moeller's... This first paragraph, I'll just read a section of this. Regrettably, many American Christians know little about economics. Furthermore, many Christians assume that the Bible has nothing at all to say about economics. But a biblical worldview actually has a great deal to teach us on economic matters. The meaning of work, the value of labor, and other economic issues are a part of the biblical worldview. Christians must allow the economic principles found in Scripture to shape our thinking. He's going to give 12 principles. But I made a note to myself, before I do the 12 principles, I want to give you a few verses. Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Proverbs 10. Now we're going to work our way through Proverbs for a moment. Proverbs 10.9. He who walks in integrity walks securely but he who perverts his ways will be found out. That can apply to our finances. Someone who steals, someone who has uh, done insider trading, someone who has broken the law in some way financially usually has trouble enjoying life because you never know when Mike Wallace and a crew from 60 Minutes is going to kick open your door or somebody else in authority and start asking you questions. It's just how it works. But if you walk in integrity, if your life, in, integrity means there's congruency, the, the pieces add up. You, you live according to how you believe. So if you walk in integrity, uh, you walk securely. But he who perverts his way will be found out. Uh, next, we would go to Proverbs 11, verse 25. Here's, here's an economic principle. The generous man 
will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Boy, that fits what Jesus said. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. Here's another economic principle. We go to Proverbs 15, verse 27. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. What is a bribe? It's a form of stealing. It's a form of thievery. And guys who do that oftentimes are found out and their entire family pays the price. Proverbs 19, verse 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he, meaning the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. Can you give to every poor man? No. But there is a sense and an openness that as God brings people along your path, that sometimes you have a sense that the Lord would have you help them. So what do you do? You help them. And the Lord sees that, and the Lord gives the return. George Mueller used to say, the Lord is my banker. He sees it all. He manages my affairs. Let's go to Proverbs 28. <clears throat> we'll go to Proverbs 28, 6. Better is the poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. A poor man <laughs> whose life adds up before the Lord, he's much better off than the rich man who has cut corners, who has been a thief. Once again, the Lord sees it all. And then in the same chapter, you have verse 8. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. In other words, if you charge excessive interest, in the Old Testament, a Jew could not charge interest to a fellow Jew. There were laws against usury excessive, excessive interest. And someone, this is an interesting passage. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury, excessive, excessive interest where the person can never dig their way out. What's gonna happen? Well, you, you gather that money, you're gathering it for him who is gracious to the poor. In other words, you ripping off the poor, God's gonna rip that out of your hands and he's gonna give it to someone who's responsible. God is the banker. God's watching over it all. Let's go back to Moeller, his 12. This article is called Towards a View of Christian Economics. 12 principles. Number one, it must have, and this has to do with the money, possessions, our business, our dealings with individuals, retirement stuff, anything. Number one, it must have God's glory as its greatest aim. It must have God's glory as its greatest aim. Whatever we do, we want to do to the glory of God. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Number two, it must respect human dignity. These people who you are dealing with are made in the image of God. There is slavery in the Old Testament. But... The slavery in the Old Testament was completely different than slavery that was in America. There was a system of slavery in the Old Testament that a man had to be released after seven years. If you got yourself in financial trouble, it was a way of getting yourself out of debt, paying it back. But there was some real, I mean, it was strict. And it respected human dignity. Completely different than we had in America. Completely different. Number three, it must respect private property and ownership. This would be a Christian view of economics. It must respect <coughs> private property and ownership. And as we said last week, is that property does not belong to the state. Property, God has given to the individual. Number four, it must take into full account the power of sin. 
it must take in to full account the power of sin. Now I'm gonna pause here for a minute and I'm gonna quote from Al Mohler again. But in his, from his book on the Ten Commandments and from the chapter that regards the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Here we go, this is good. Because uh, last week we looked at socialism, we looked at communism, and we talked about a little bit, we touched on free markets, all right? When looking at the realities of free market capitalism, we should remember what Winston Churchill said about democracy. It is the worst form of government, except for all the others. One of the positive aspects of a free market economy is that it acknowledges the right to personal property and private possessions. It understands that it is not an unlimited right, but nonetheless, it is an inherent right, part of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and part of the dignity of labor. It is one of the requisites for a civilization. A free market economy, more than other systems, tends to link together the risk and reward of investment, toil and reward, work and income. However, it also allows for all kinds of marketing, advertising, and a number of business practices, locally and globally, that call out not the best, but the worst. So in a free market society, is everyone doing business with a pure heart? Well, you know the answer to that. The answer is no. Why? We've all got diseased hearts, even after we come to know Christ. So we have got to be careful in our financial dealings. We've got to be careful in how we handle applications, how we fill them out. Here's another one. Here's another form of stealing. Uh, you have to be very careful when you put together a resume. You can steal on a resume by falsifying. You're stealing a job perhaps from another person because you have inflated your qualifications when in actuality those aren't your qualifications at all and the person who actually deserves the job, you have robbed with your inflated resume. So any system, you've got to talk about free market, capital, whatever you want to talk about. You've got, you've got the issue of sin. It's there, it's real, and it's powerful. And every day we've got to card our hearts in order to protect our integrity. So what we have to do. There's no getting around it. Uh, sin has a pervasive effect. And when the human heart and the greed that's in the human heart starts influencing decisions, it's just sinful. So can sin, sin, can sin take place in any economic system? Absolutely. Can sin take place in a transaction between Christians? Sure. Absolutely. You've seen it and I've seen it. Fifth point that Moeller makes toward a Christian view of economics, here's the fifth point. It must uphold and reward righteousness. Those verses we read from Proverbs God is watching. And in our dealings, God sees our behavior. He sees our interactions. He sees uh, the applications. He sees the loan application. He sees all this stuff. He upholds and he rewards righteousness. But when you get into falsifying, he will deal with that in your life. Number six, it must reward initiative, industry, and investment. Because of where our culture is and what has happened and what has occurred in terms of the family and in terms of absent fathers, in terms of distant fathers, we have, we've been watching this for a number of years. We have more and more young men, and it's not all young men, 
by, for sure. But we have, we're seeing an increasing number of young men who are attempting to prolong adolescence and postpone manhood. They're attempting to prolong the teenage years. They're attempting, even into their 20s, mid-20s, even into their 30s, to act like they're 15. We are seeing more and more young men who don't work, but they live at home, and they breastfeed financially off of their mother. You know it, and I know it. That is a form. See, that's a young man who will not take initiative. That young man is supposed to take initiative. That young man is supposed to work. He is not, and when you allow him to just sit and breastfeed off of that financial you know, endowment, um, you are robbing him of manhood, and he is robbing you. Nobody wins in that situation. Young men must be taught a work ethic, and it starts with boys. Boys must be taught to work. It's just how it works. And when that breaks down, when that breaks down in a family, it breaks down in the nation, you've got all kinds of problems. Number seven, it must seek to reward and incentivize thrift and savings. Basic fundamental principle. It's interesting you read through Proverbs, um, how much you'll see about savings. Savings, um, savings, you know, for children's children. Savings for old age. It's amazing how much wisdom is in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom about everyday practical life. Number eight, it must uphold the family as the most basic economic unit. Because the family is the most basic economic unit. The state, the nation, is not the most fundamental economic unit. God established the family. He established marriage. Nine, it must respect community. It must respect community. I'll come back to this. Number 10, it must reward generosity and proper stewardship. Um, we're stewards of what God has given to us. That means we, ultimately, we don't own it. God owns it all. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Whatever you have is on loan to you from him. It's for a season. Trust me, you will not leave this earth with it. Will you? And we all know that. We all know it. It must reward generosity. Generosity is Christian. It's Christian. Has God been generous with us? He sent his own son. He was generous with us. He paid a price we couldn't pay. Can I pay my way out of my sin? Can I work my way out of my sin? Absolutely not. So he sent his son to pay for my sin. That's generosity. Have this same spirit in you. Have this same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. So there should be generosity in God's people. And historically, there have been. This popped into my head. Back when George W. Bush was president, there was, he had a thing, there was a term that started being popular called compassionate conservatism. That actually came from a professor at the University of Texas named Marvin Olasky who was a Jewish communist in college and who met Christ. <laughs> and Olasky now is executive editor for uh, World Magazine. But Olasky wrote this book. I got it in my office. He wrote this book on, um, and I wish I could pull the title, but I can't. But it's about the church and how the church took care of the poor historically. In, 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 in the worst possible times, when there were epidemics, when there were the black plague and people are fleeing and leaving, who stayed? Christians. Uh, in America, 
in times of, and you know, we remember that we, we've all heard of the Great Depression of the 30s, but man, there were other depressions. They used to come pretty rapidly. And when there were bread lines and there was a, up, and, up until Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that wasn't, the government wasn't the one that was bailing people out, it was the church. Read Olasky's book. He proves it. The church took that on as part of the ministry of the gospel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. That's the first commandment. And the second is like unto the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when crisis hit, it was the church that was compassionate and showed the love of Christ in generosity. Uh, so 11, it must respect the priority of the church and its mission. Number 12, and, and this, is, this is a big sentence, but it's really practical. It must focus on es eschatological judgment and eschatological promise. What does that mean? It means you're gonna stand before Christ. E-S-C-H-A-T-O and then logical. It's last days. See, here's the thing. There's all this social injustice, there's all this economic, horrible things go on. People are, they have stuff taken from them, they're abused, they're, it's horrible, horrible. It breaks your heart. There's a day coming when every wrong is gonna be made right. There's gonna be a day of judgment and there's gonna be a day of reward. Now, allow me to give you two examples of a Christian view of economics as lived out historically. And I wanna give you the names of two men. This would be my third point. A bad example and a good example of a Christian economic view. The bad example would be a man named John, James Monteith, M-O-N-T-E-I-T-H. You probably have never heard of him, but he owned um, a large factory in Scotland in the early to mid-1800s. You haven't heard of him, but you probably heard of a young man who went to work for him when he was 10 years old to try and help his family survive. That young boy's name was David Livingston. Became the great missionary to Africa. This is uh, Livingston's biography done by Rob McKenzie. Just a couple of paragraphs. Uh, the family had a frugal lifestyle. The family budget was deficient. It was hard to feed the family. So David, at the age of 10, was called upon to share in the upkeep of the home. He obtained a job at Monteith and Company, a cotton spinning factory where his work was spelled out for him. He was to be a piecer, which meant that he had to piece together the threads in the spinning frames if they threatened to break. The noisy, dimly lit, humid atmosphere was to become his environment for the next decade. In the summer and throughout the bitterly cold winters, he was awakened at 5.30 in the morning by the mill bell. He, like the other children who worked at the mill, would tumble into scanty clothing, gulp down a plate of scalding porridge, and make their way to the factory. They would work from six in the morning until eight at night in tremendous heat and humidity. For steam temperatures of 80 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit were considered ideal for the production of thread. They only had half an hour's break for breakfast mid-morning and an hour free for lunch, a working day of 12 and a half hours, six days a week. This kid's 10 years old. The management claimed that times were too hard to shorten working hours and constantly referred to cotton shortages to back up their case. But James Monteith, the owner of the mills, in five bad years, 
made a personal fortune of 80,000 pounds, which would be multi-millions today in five years. So what did piecers do? Piecers needed sharp eyes and the power of, oh, by the way, uh, Monteith considered himself a Christian man. Attended, no doubt, the Christian church. It was just a thing to do. It was good for business. Piecers needed sharp eyes and the power of constant attention if they were to avoid frequent beatings. This was in Scotland. They also had to be unusually agile since their work often involved climbing under the machinery or balancing over it. Piecers walked close to 20 miles a day in the mills. And much of this distance was covered in crawling or stooping positions. Long floors, long hours on their feet often led to the development of how legs, uh, of bowed legs and varicose veins. Towards evening, if they started to fall asleep, uh, a beating with a leather strap or a dousing with a bucket of water generally renewed their energies. Many of the children ended up with limbs deformed and growth stunted. That was his life for uh, 10 years, from 10 to 20. And he worked for a Christian man who was absolutely abusing the principles in the scripture about human dignity and God's system of economics. Absolutely abusing. He was stealing. He was robbing. He, knows, he no longer walks the earth. Now let's contrast him with another man named Arthur Guinness. I read a fascinating book several years ago, and I mentioned it. I'll mention it again. By Stephen Mansfield, The Search for God in Guinness. And yes, on the front... That's Guinness. Nice glass of Guinness ale. And you say, how could you bring that book into the sanctuary <laughs> of this church? Well, Guinness, Arthur Guinness was an interesting guy. He, he came to the Lord and was thoroughly converted. He loved Christ, he loved the scriptures, he was a, he worked in a brewery. Now back, and in, in Mansfield is very careful to set up the situation uh, of the culture in Ireland. You, you know, one of the big issues that's always been with humanity is, is water. When you've got bad water, you're in trouble. When you've got bad water, you've got disease. When you've got bad water, people get sick. When you've got bad water, you get cholera. They had an issue with bad water. And in his day and time, beer was considered uh, to have medicinal value because it contained alcohol and it was a better alternative than just drinking straight water. So by the most conservative believers, beer was understood to be almost of medicinal value. I'm not going to take much time on that except to say that was the culture. That was the situation. On the other hand, you had an epidemic going on in Dublin, Ireland and the surrounding areas. Uh, today we have, we have people that are strung out on meth and crack cocaine. Back then it wasn't meth or crack cocaine. Back then it was gin. Um, and it was, it was horrific there were gin joints on every corner and about every other house. And it was ripping apart families. Uh, it could make you blind. It could make you insane. It was absolutely destroying the fabric of families in Dublin, Ireland. <clears throat> this young man, Arthur Guinness, received an inheritance. And he went to his knees for weeks and weeks and weeks and prayed and asked God to show him how he can make a difference for Christ. And he was willing to do anything. And he prayed and he consulted and he got counsel. And this is the story. He was 
convinced that God was calling him to start a brewery. And he did. That's how Guinness started. Uh, things were so bad back then, and I'm going to read this section to you. Guinness probably felt a moral mandate for this calling. He was stepping onto a broader stage of brewing, brewing just as the gin craze was disseminating much of the world. In the early 1700s, one in every six houses in London was a gin shop, some with signs proclaiming, drunk for one penny, dead drunk for two pence, clean straw for nothing. For the lower classes, gin solved everything. It was fed to infants when they cried, given the children to make them sleep, and consumed to the point of intoxication by most every adult. It poisoned men's souls, making them lazy, mean, and wild. One bishop complained, gin has made the English people what they never were before, cruel and inhuman. So it was with the Irish as well. Uh, he concocted a formula, and he asked God to lead him. That was comprised of, uh, there was a lot of B vitamins in there. Because they had a model for years with Guinness, it's good for you. It's good for you. And what happened with Arthur Guinness, it's a fascinating story. But these 12 principles that I gave you from Albert Muller on a Christian view of economics, this guy put into practice. He, um, he changed the city of Dublin, family by family. He changed the nation of Ireland. He began to change other countries as Guinness was exported. And when they would, it, it just, because he would not depart from his biblical principles. I'll read from the last page of the book, which kind of sums up what this man did for Christ. We seem to have forgotten the idea of a corporate destiny, that workers and owners, labor and management, prosper together or decline separately. We have forgotten that in a moral free market, social uplift best happens through the power of benevolent employment. It is in the world of work that men gain skills, have character modeled for them, gain a broader education, learn to read. And you see, he would set up classes for his men who couldn't read or for anyone in their family, he would set up schools where they could learn to read. Once they could learn to read, he would have a class for the man and his wife where they would learn basic, basic budgeting principles so that they could handle their paycheck correctly according to biblical principles. That's what he did from day one. He hired doctors to provide medical care. It is in the world of work that men gain skills, have character modeled for them, gain a broader education, learn to lead, and are given tools of advancements for their families. Guinness understood this. The company did not drain a man and then expect the church or the state to rebuild him again. They invested. They paid high wages, offered every type of education. They provided medicine, sports, entertainment, and even a place to think, chapels, libraries and assured every kind of financial safety net for those who served them well, retirement benefits. They did this because it was the right thing to do, yes, but also because it made the firm more successful than those who did not understand this vital kind of investment. The truth is, as Edward Cecil proclaimed, we must invest in those who serve us if we expect to serve well. It is one of the great pillars of the Guinness legacy, and it is wisdom that we should reclaim, particularly in our modern economic world of tension and strife. This man did it right. It's having an effect to this day. When you read the book, there are three strains of the Guinness family from the 1700s. Uh, there were the brewmasters, then there were the bankers, who ran their banks according to Christian principles, and then there were the missionaries. Os <laughs> Guinness, the Christian writer of our day, is a direct descendant of Arthur Guinness. There are others who have used 
their work skills for the glory of God. J.C. Penney. <laughs> J.C. Penney has fallen on some rough times. So here's the problem. Generations go by and those who lead generations later do not adhere to the principles of those who founded the company. J.C. Penney started out with biblical principles, took a number of hits in his personal life, not unlike what Job went through, it caused him to go into a deep depression. It took him several years to recover, but when he recovered, he recovered. And he began to build store by store, community by community. He was a Christian man committed to the gospel. Moody Bible Institute has been around for a long time. Started with Dwight Moody preaching on the streets of Chicago. You got a large Moody Bible Institute, you've got Moody Church, you've got Moody Radio, it goes all over the world. A young businessman was taken with Moody, believed in his message, and decided that this company that he had started, he would take a portion of those profits and donate it to the ministry of Moody. Quaker Oats does that to this day. You see, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. And you don't need to steal. Because my God shall supply all your needs. According to his riches and glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the practicality. When all else fails, if we would just read the directions and follow them and trust you, we would have a better culture and a better nation. People would get along better. We would be more productive. People would be drawn to Christ. Uh, we each have our sphere of influence. Help us as stewards of our little piece of the earth to lead with integrity and according to your word and to trust you with our lives and our finances and our future. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.